Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 1004. If you can dream it, you can be it. And don't quit. Don't give up. You get roadblocks. You get setbacks. You start having doubts. If you believe in a career path, a journey in your life, just keep at it. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I'm revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Mike Quincy. Hey, Mike, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? Uh, absolutely. Bring it on. All right. Mike Quincy is an automotive writer and specialist at Consumer Reports. He writes for Consumer Reports Magazine and their online title, ConsumerReports.org. Mike's responsible for ensuring that all automotive data and information is accurate and up-to-date for their readers. He also edits the monthly automotive technical report for CR and edits content for the Consumer Reports car blog. Mike's purchased over 140 cars for CR test programs and appears regularly on CR's Talk Cars podcast. You'll probably have seen him on many shows, including the Today Show, Good Morning America, CBS, Evening News, CNN, MSNBC, and Fox and & Friends, and everywhere else, it seems like. So, Mike, I've told our listeners just a little bit about you. Would you take a brief moment share a little more about your career and a very obvious passion for automobiles? Well, it, it occurred to me early in my in my life that it would be a, a really neat way to become an adult and make a living by doing something that I was interested in. So I was lucky enough to figure out that I could combine my love of writing and my love of cars. And it was it was not always easy. It, it didn't always happen the same kind of a time frame that you think it would go like like most things. It was a little harder than I thought it was going to be. But once it came together, I realized that, you know, you really can live a life like this that you kind of dream about or fantasize about. And I have two young teenage boys and I'm trying to tell them this lesson that, you know, if you can dream it, you can really do it. And I, and I guess I'm trying to to live live those words. Well, you are living those words, and that's why I love having people like you on the show. It's all about the mantra here at Cars, yeah, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, people who've wrapped that passion into their careers and their lives, and you're a great example. So as we continue on your journey, I always want to start with a success quote or a mantra, something that has meaning for you. It's a nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars, yeah? So, Mike, take the wheel. I'm going to, again, relate back to my kids, and what I tell them is, if you're not early— you're late, <laughs> which isn't really a great inspirational mantra. But <laughs> when I when I saw your notes before um, when we were setting this interview up, that's just the first thing that came to my head. Yeah, yeah. You know, I my listeners have heard this before. My father taught me a really valuable lesson, and it's, it serves me well to this day. He used to say, "You know what? Always show up to work before the boss, and don't leave till the boss leaves." Yeah, and, same idea. And the other idea of being on time is being respectful of other people's time. I used to run a company where I had 12 managers reporting to me, and I had one that was chronically late to our weekly manager's meeting. It just drove me crazy because I'm looking around the room seeing all these people counting up the value of time of them standing there waiting for this one guy. So I locked the door one day, and he came and knocked, knock, knock, and said, sorry, you're late. 
You know what? That was the last time he was late to that meeting. <laughs> I think that's a good lesson probably learned that this manager will then, you know, carry on probably for the rest of his or her life. I hope and, so. And I think as I, as I get older, you know, time is more valuable to me than, than just about anything else. So if I'm in a situation where I feel someone is wasting my time, or let's say you spend a lot of time writing a story and it gets edited over and over and over and changed, and you find out they've put in all these mistakes and you have to go back and fix everything. It's like, I don't mind being edited. But I really mind a waste of time. That gets me more than almost anything these days. Well, uh, I think as you and I get to this point in our life, and we're probably somewhat in the same age bracket, time is the enemy. I write a weekly blog here on Cars, yeah, and that was the title of one of them, Time is the Enemy, because it, it is relentless. It never stops. Nope, waits for no one. Would you share a story with us that instigated your personal passion for cars? Go back in time and think about that moment when you realized you were a car guy. It happened early on. Uh, I, I think we've all had this assignment in grade school of what do you want to be when you grow up? And I thought about it and I thought about it and I looked around my room and I looked in my magazine pile and I thought, I want to be like those guys at, at Car and Driver and Road and Track. I want to write about cars. And so I sat down and I wrote up my essay and I was I was really proud of it. And uh, and I went out to show it to my dad. My dad was the original car guy, smart guy, MIT graduate, you know, the whole works. And I was so proud of myself showing him that essay. And, and, he, and he looked at it and he read it and he looked at me, and he looked at the paper and he looked at me and he said, that's a stupid idea. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> he just said, that, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard of, which, of course, crushed me. But I, I submitted the essay anyway. But it wasn't until after he died just a couple of years after I got out of college. When, when somebody dies, you, you just think you either got get, got to get busy living or get busy dying. And I thought, OK, I'm not going to waste any more time. My dad didn't approve of this, but he's not here to tell me that I'm crazy anymore. So that's when I started pursuing this in earnest. It wasn't so much that you have the skills to write a decent sentence or you have the automotive knowledge and enthusiasm. To me, the biggest thing was you have to have the courage to go forward and try for it anyway. When people said, oh, my gosh, you know, there's no jobs out there. Oh, William Jeans, the former editor of Car and Driver, was so kind and gracious. And he said, you know, yeah, you have to understand that this is like the Supreme Court getting these jobs. There's like hardly any turnover. People get their way into these magazines and they never leave. And this was, again, before websites. So this is, you know, the mid-1980s. But I didn't let that stop me. So it, it was really more about overcoming fear and doubt than anything else. And again, what I'm trying to teach my kids is suppose you want to go into a, a very competitive field and people are trying to talk you out of it and say the odds are against you. Just ignore them and keep moving forward. You know, it's very poignant that you mentioned this. I just returned from being a keynote speaker at several events for APR. It's a high performance company. In fact, they're going to be a new sponsor here on Cars. Yeah, so go APR. And one of the things I talked about is what I've learned from talking to over a thousand people now. And you just hit on two of them. When people have ideas to do things with their lives and their careers or a new business, there's two things that usually stop them. Fear, you talked about, you have to have the courage to do it. And the naysayers, people who tell them not to do it. It's a dumb idea. Don't go there. It'll never work. And the one thing I've learned from my a thousand plus guests, and now you, of course, Mike, is... Don't listen to either of those things because fear, as my father taught me, is an acronym for false evidence assumed real. If you haven't tried it, you don't know if you can really do it or not. So you have to try it. And the other one is don't listen to the naysayers. Just go out and do it and prove them wrong until they're knocking on your door wanting a job with you. 
So right. <laughs> the way to do it. it it's, yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more. We have a where, where I work at Consumer Reports is we have a, our own independent 327-acre test facility. I mean, we're, we're literally in the middle of nowhere, but we've got our own track, and it's an awesome place to be. So when I get a request from someone who says, my kid, I got this 10-year-old or 15-year-old kid, and, and he loves cars, is there any way you could show us around? I mean, I never, ever turn those kind of requests down. They usually bring a, a friend or two and it's mom, dad, and I give, I give them a tour of, of the facility. But at the end of the tour, I'm giving out some free magazines and I kind of say just the same thing that you said to me. If there is a career or something that you want to do and there are people that are trying to talk them out of it, don't listen to them. And I turned to the parents and I said, you know, sorry, mom, dad, but, you know, and yeah. I turned to the kid and I was like, don't let anybody tell you you're crazy. Don't let anybody tell your dreams are stupid. You go forward and do it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And if you fail, then find some help so you can figure out the way to do it because there's lots of folks out there like Mike and myself and all my thousand plus guests who are willing to help you succeed. They are out there and they're happy to help. Well, let's take a look at some of the many roads you've driven and talk about a big challenge or a big failure that you face in your life or your career. Kind of walk us through it. But of course, the most important part of these things, and we touched on it earlier, is what they teach us so that we can be better. So tell us how one of your experiences helped you gain even more momentum in your career and your business. The first opportunity I got to work in automotive journalism came from David E. Davis Jr. at Automobile Magazine. And this was just about maybe three years after he launched this new title. And so it really wasn't considered one of the big ones yet. I mean, there was, you know, there was car and driver, there's road track, there's motor trend. And then way behind was automobile, but I didn't care. It was a chance to get started. It was literally a dream come true. You can almost understand when, when somebody like wins a big award and they stand in front of everyone and the microphone and the lights on them and they just say, I can't believe this is happening. You almost feel it's like out of body. You almost feel dizzy. And that's how I felt when I started at Automobile Magazine because it really was a dream came true. And I wore the sweatshirts and the hats and the t-shirts and the whole thing. And then about six months later, it all fell apart. I was really hoping to go into an environment to learn how to become an automotive journalist, to learn how to become a better writer, to learn the business. I was surrounded by well-known writers at the time, and I didn't realize that there wasn't this kind of congeniality, this all for one and we'll help you. And it was sink or swim, and I was probably so either intimidated or starstruck that I couldn't relax. I couldn't write well. And about six, eight months later, David E. Davis fired me. And I couldn't believe it. I thought, this is the best of times. This is the worst of times. I desperately tried to get another job in the, in the industry, but nobody would touch me. I mean, I was kind of damaged goods and I was like 25, 26 years old. And I thought, oh my God, it is falling apart. It's over. It, I, how can it be over? I, I just got started. And I'd moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan to be part of the organization. And once they canned me, I had to do something. I wasn't going to leave Michigan with that cloud hanging over my head. I said, I'm going to, I grew up in Connecticut. I had a girlfriend back there and she wanted me to come back. But I said, I'm not just, I'm not just hightailing it out of here. I got, I got to do something. And I managed to get a job with a public relations agency that had the, uh, the Detroit auto show and they had Ford as one of their big clients. And they kind of looked at me and kind of scratched their chin a little bit and said, well, okay. So they hired me. I had an edge to me. I was felt more driven I said, I am going to knock this out like you can't believe. 
and I worked my tail off. They were promoting me and they it was bittersweet because I, I wasn't doing automotive journalism, but I was using my writing and automotive skills to help the company. And I felt I accomplished something. And my girlfriend said, you know, it would really be nice if you came back east. And, and I had a friend that wanted to start up a, a microbrewery. We're going to be like, you know, <laughs> yeah. the craft beer thing that's going on right now. We were talking about doing that back in the 80s. I felt that I did a good job for this PR company. And I, and I, put, I put in my resignation. And even though I was there for less than a year, they gave me a, a smashing goodbye party. And I, I moved back east. And, you know, long story short, the girlfriend and I broke up. My buddy and I never opened a brew pub. But to answer your question, it was really tough going for a while there. I've used that as a as motivation for the rest of my life. It's like, you know, work harder than you think you have to because you're not just going to slide by on, on good looks or talent or, or a charming interview. You have to really knock it out all the time. And yeah, sorry for the long answer, but but it no, was, it's a great answer, and kudos to you for pivoting and, and not running away and going. Well, maybe Dad was right; I shouldn't have done this, and I'll go do something else uh, because you knew in your heart that's what you really wanted to do. And I think David E. Davis did you a huge favor when you look back, and I think you would agree that's the takeaway here. He helped you realize you had to work a lot harder, you had to step up your game. You weren't there yet, and you figured out a way to do it. So I, I appreciate you sharing a really painful time in your life with with all of us because it's very inspirational. And for those folks that have had that happen to them, which so many have, don't give up. Just find yeah, another and, way and to do it. Now that Consumer Reports, and again, we're the only automotive publisher with our own test track. We buy our own test cars. We don't take advertising. We don't have to kowtow to anybody. We're not owned by anybody. And the track is only about 15 minutes from my house. And we come here on the weekends and we play. And <laughs> I mean, it really has, has turned out way, way better than I thought it was going to. Every kind of automotive dream and fantasy that I ever had when I was younger has been so far surpassed since I've worked at Consumer Reports. I, I can't even begin to explain it. Yeah, oh, fantastic. Private weekend track. I think I'll send you my resume. Maybe you need an extra <laughs> driver. Let's shift gears and go to the other end of the spectrum, what I call the aha moment in your career. You kind of alluded to one there, but I would assume you had many others. So tell us about one and tell us how that turned your life around. Well, I, I think as if you're, if you're doing anything creative, you have moments of, of doubt and pain and suffering. But then as you get a little bit older and more experienced, your copy comes back with fewer and fewer red ink over it. And you're allowed to, now I'm writing scripts for videos that I'm doing I'm not worrying about stuff so much. I feel free to be myself to a degree that I never felt before in any kind of a work environment. It isn't to say that I'm careless or irresponsible, but the amount of time that I spent worrying about whether or not my stuff was good enough was you know, so useless and so pointless other than it, it drove me to try to be better. And now I can spend less time worrying, more time trusting my instincts and when I write something, I think that's a good line. And then when it makes it to the final print or production, I'm happy about that. I, I guess to answer your question, I don't I don't worry as much as I used to. And I'm really glad about that. Well, Mike, that's called seat time, <laughs> at least yeah. on the track for sure. But same with career. Yeah, when you get to a point, you feel very confident and you've been there, done that. You've done it for so long that you feel like you can uh, just focus on all the polishing and polishing and polishing. Well, let's go back in your time and talk about a really first special car. In our pre-show chat, I'll let our listeners know, Mike and I were talking about our first matchbox cars and having them. And I pulled a couple out, my first two, a Ferrari Lusso and a Jaguar XKE. And he smiled. He goes, I've got those cars. Yeah, I've got those in my collection. But let's talk about a real car, the car you drive, your first one that really had a meaning for you. The first 
new car that I bought for myself, and this was before I, I started uh, writing for car magazines. I was kind of doing the 80, early 80s thing, which was money management and economic consulting. But the first new car that I bought was a 1987 Honda Civic Si. This was kind of the sporty version of the boxy Civic at the time. It wasn't as hot as a Volkswagen GTI, but it was cheaper. It turns out, as the data that I've looked at, a lot more reliable, more fuel efficient. It had a better ride. It was quieter. But I was so proud of that car. And and if you remember the 80s, Hondas were really hot and you couldn't buy them. You couldn't. Honda was really smart. They really limited the amount of stock that the dealers had. And so some dealers charged a lot over the list price. But I found one that I, I, I really wanted. It was black. It had no options and it didn't even have a radio, no air conditioning because I couldn't afford anything. Wow. Uh, but it was it was ten thousand forty three dollars and seventy five cents, a number I'll <laughs> never forget. Yeah. And they had it on the showroom floor for me. I signed all the papers and they, they lifted up this big garage and I literally drove the car off the showroom floor and I'm driving back to my house and I'm laughing hysterically at myself because I can't believe I have a new car. It, 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 I'll, n- <laughs> I'll never forget. And, and, and you know, the, as car guys go, it, it didn't stick around as long as, as maybe you'd hoped. I, I, I got in the line on a first-gen Mazda RX-7. I thought, oh, i got to have a sports car. So I sold my Honda and I bought the Mazda. And actually, it turns out the Honda Civic Si was more fun to drive than that RX-7. Wow, cool. Well, you took me back to the day I bought my first car, 1979, a VW Scirocco. Oh, uh, I a girlfriend in in college that had a Scirocco. Yeah, I got to drive it off the showroom floor, man. I I felt like the cat's meow. That was just so cool. I had that car for like 10 years. It It was a great little car. Really enjoyed it quite a bit. How about seller's remorse? Is there a vehicle you've owned in your lifetime that you wish you had back? After my dad died, I decided to do some silly things and I wanted an old Mustang. I had a. I went out and found a a 1965 Mustang GT. It was a a K code car, so it was you know m- not just the garden variety Mustang. It was black with red stripes. Uh, it had a 271 horsepower solid lifter motor, four speed, tan interior, and I kept it for a long, long time. When I met my wife to be. I thought, you know, we we really we probably should sell the Mustang because we're going to need it to buy a house and blah, blah, blah. And to her credit, and this is why she and most women are smarter than me, she said, no, we're not selling the Mustang. We're not doing it. And there were many times during our lives when we, you know, we were cash poor and we thought, you know, we really should sell the Mustang. And she was always, no, 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 no. And I had, I had two boys, but they showed zero interest in this old car. And we went on this kind of extravagant vacation a couple of years ago, and we had massive bills. And I said, you know, I think it's time. And my wife said, you know, it probably is because our boys are showing no, you know, it's not computerized. It was, it's the most analog car you'll ever see in your life. We finally wound up selling it. And when we found the buyer and we were sprucing it up before we delivered it, and, and that's when my oldest son suddenly got all misty-eyed about this Mustang. <laughs> so, but at least I know that he has some interest in cars, and I think there is going to be a father-son project in the, in the near future. But I guess if I have any, any uh, you know, seller's remorse, it's, it's for that old 65 Mustang. No doubt. I had a 66 Fastback. Uh, it was a really fun car. Everybody loved that thing. It was great to drive and uh, made a lot of cool sounds and noises. It was a GT350 clone. So it was white with the blue stripe, looked just like, oh, nice. yeah, just was a really fun car. Well, let's talk about uh, today and tomorrow. What has you excited and what kind of things are you working on there at Consumer Reports? 
We're you know traditionally a the old school paper magazine, and and like most publishers, we're we're morphing from from paper publishing to electronic publishing. And I'm lucky because I have a boss that that really saw this coming years and years ago. He said, you know, the the future is digital, and that's where we have to go. So. We've been doing more and more of that. I've been doing a lot of the Consumer Reports Cars Facebook page, so I'm doing more more social media for them. I continue to do videos. We do a lot of videos here at the track for Consumer Reports. A part of the podcast, we have a revolving a cast of people that you know three of us sit down around a table and discuss the automotive news and, and goings on at the track of the day. And so I'm doing more of that. You kind of go from being a writer to now doing other stuff besides just putting words together, you know, matching the words and the visual. We're all trying to figure out this social media thing. You know, how long should your videos be? Should they be a minute? Should they be 30 seconds? Should they be whatever the heck you want them to be? Yep. Uh, I don't think anybody knows. Now pick they one. Say they do, you pay all this money for consultants and say, oh, it has to be X, Y, and Z. I don't think anybody knows how to do this. Well, it's always changing. <laughs> it's, it's a moving funny. target. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's cool. And I've heard this from a lot of guests as they evolve an older company evolving into this new uh, way of being. And I just had a great conversation with a, a past guest of mine, Mitch Williams, who's the CEO at APR, who I mentioned earlier. And he was saying the same thing, learning these uh, millennials, learning about what people want that are interested. But, you know, there's still that other demographic for you guys, Consumer Reports, of of that really highly motivated um, and learning new stuff group of people from, say, 50 to even 70 years old who are now getting into using the computer. And they're the ones who buy stuff. They've got money. And so they're right. the ones to target, too. I think that's an excellent point because, you know, we're always trying to get a younger audience, but, but the younger audience really doesn't command that much money. Uh, you know, from a statistical standpoint yep. in, in the United States, it is still the older people, older generation. The baby boomers are still going and oh, they yeah. still you know, wield a very heavy financial hammer. Don't don't count us out, baby. We're still here. <laughs> so, well, here's a very introspective question for you, Mike. If you were a vehicle, what would Mike be and why? <laughs> oh, gosh. I'll bet my wife would wish that I was a really reliable pickup truck. <laughs> you know, can do stuff functional, yep. uh, not not pretty to look at, but but get stuff done. I yeah. suppose. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, there isn't one vehicle that appeals to everybody. I would probably you know try to be something useful to help my household, yeah. which is a boring answer, but that's the best one I can come up with. Well, it's direct and honest. We all wish we were a Ferrari, but we all don't quite look that great. We're not that fast. So uh, I think a, a steady tried and true. And of course, as you know, Consumer Reports, the truck is one of the most beloved vehicles in the United States, the pickup truck. I mean, they're just everywhere. Everywhere you go, people love pickup trucks. People use them. They're helpful. Everybody wants one once or twice in their life, at least when they need to move or haul stuff. So they always go to that buddy that has one. Well, Mike, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal, let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsors. Do you know the best way to protect your vehicle, both the exterior and the interior, is with a car cover? I've been using Covercraft car covers since 1975. That's right, 1975. It's a fast, easy, and inexpensive way to keep your vehicle looking new. Covercraft has been manufacturing premium quality exterior and interior covers for over 50 years with a stellar reputation for durability and design. They're the world's largest manufacturer of custom-patterned vehicle covers that are crafted to fit over 80,000 patterns and growing. They are the only cover I'll put on my vehicles. You can choose from a wide variety of fabrics, 
styles, colors, and more. From full cover designs for factory to custom-made vehicles, plus convertible top covers, trucks, truck cab coolers, motorcycles, scooters, ATVs, trailers, campers, personal watercraft, and a wide variety of custom features. Covercraft is the right choice. Learn more today at Covercraft.com and tell them Mark sent you. That's Covercraft.com. What's every automotive enthusiast dream? To design and build that perfect garage. My friends at Metron Garage are a group of creative talents who've combined their passion for cars with their careers in architecture. Their service includes unique garage design and state-of-the-art fabrication. They will create the coolest custom garage for you and your vehicles. Metron Garage's system features fully engineered commercial-grade material and structural framing that's stronger than traditional construction. Their designs are pre-engineered to meet your building codes for fast, bolt-together construction. With over 25 years of experience, you'll see a 3D rendering to visualize your custom garage, and the final structure will fulfill all your storage needs. Contact Metron Garage today and begin realizing your dream garage. Go to metrongarage.com. That's metrongarage.com. Garage is built for discerning enthusiasts. Where it's not just a garage, it's where your dream garage comes true. Okay, Mike, we're back and we're entering the last lap. I'm going to fire off a series of questions and ask you to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So here we go. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? Slow down in the snow. <laughs> yeah. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. Slow And the rain. Yeah, I live where it rains a lot here. You live where you get snow. Yeah, slow down. My but, goodness. And, and that's the, what, the advice that I gave to my teenage son who just started driving a couple of years ago. It's just slow down. Yep, absolutely. It's pretty simple, but it works. Would you share one of your personal habits you believe has contributed to your many successes over the years? Teach yourself to get up early. There's been just so much written about the successful people in our world, and most of them are early risers. And what I combine that with regular exercise, you know, sensible eating and drinking, then I am, I've got more energy, I've got a clear head, and I just do more. But usually, it, I had to learn how to, how to get up early, but it's in my blood right now. And so rising at 5 a.m. does not phase me anymore. I think my five years of being a paper boy when I was in junior high and high school taught me about getting up early. But you know what? I was always out in the ocean surfing after that before I went to school with that dawn patrol when the sun was coming up. And we mentioned it earlier. Time is the enemy. So use that extra hour in the day and you'd be surprised how much you can get done when it's quiet and everyone else is asleep. And that is my most favorite part of the day when the house is asleep and I've made a pot of coffee and I am completely alone. Yeah. Yeah. It's very nice. Now about a resource, do you have one? And I know Consumer Reports is the obvious brand resource here, uh, but maybe there's another resource you'd like to share with our listeners that they might not know about. Could be related to Consumer Reports, of course. From a personal as well as professional perspective, I would say some of the greatest resources are the people that I work with, specifically the engineers. Consumer Reports combines people with writing talent as well as people with engineering talent. Most of the engineers that I work with that test the cars usually have come from industry. They've seen you know, development of cars from the ground up literally. And so we take all of that information and, and morph it into how we test cars. 
And I think I've learned so much over the years from these engineers about the technical workings and the nitty gritty stuff about how a car functions that, that even even regular readers of car magazines aren't going to ever know or, or can figure it out. Maybe they help me with the technical side and I help them with the writing side. So it's a it's a good relationship. Absolutely. If I can arrange for you to have a drink with anyone in the automotive industry, living or deceased, who would that person be? We didn't have a drink, but I got to meet Bob Sinclair, who used to run Saab in the United States. Saab ever had glory days. It was it was kind of, you know, late 70s to mid 80s when they were, you know, selling like proverbial hotcakes before GM bought them. Again, I was just trying to get my foothold in automotive journalism. And I lived in Connecticut. Saab's headquarters was in Orange, Connecticut. So it's about 30 minutes from me. And I just on a whim, I called his office and said, I, I'm a freelance writer. I'd love to do an interview with Mr. Sinclair. Left a message. Next day, he calls me back. Mr. Sinclair himself calls me back and, and offers me to I come to his office. And I asked him all these questions. And it was the coolest thing. I, I just I couldn't believe someone of his caliber would answer my phone call and chat with me for 30, 40 minutes. Yeah, very nice. Very cool. Well, how about a book? Is there a book you've read that you think our listeners would enjoy reading as well? I don't think you, if you're a car person, I don't think you could beat uh, The Art of Racing in the Rain. <laughs> yes, by Garth um, Stein. Yeah, I mean, that, which you maybe have, have other people on you, that you've interviewed that said the same thing. I think that's a great place to start. If you have some listeners that are interested in learning about writing uh, when I was at Automobile Magazine, I got to meet Jim Harrison, who, who died just a few years ago. Uh, Jim used to do some some work for Automobile. He did like cars. He wasn't a real car guy as much as he was an outdoorsman, a gourmand, uh, an incredible drinker. But I have read everything that Jim Harrison has published. He shows you what an art form it is to be able to write so elegantly, so gracefully. So he's funny. He's crude. But his descriptions of his eating and drinking just uh, are amazing. <laughs> I'm sad that he's that he's no longer with us. But I would encourage everyone that's listening to your show. You want to learn how to write well? Read Jim Harrison. Yeah, absolutely. And Gar Stein, I remind our listeners, has been a guest here on Cars, yeah? His book is the most commented on requested book of all my listeners. If you're a car person, you would love uh, The Art of Racing in the Rain. And I'll remind our listeners there's a great place on the Cars Yow website called Guest Recommended Books under the References tab. I'll put these books that Mike has suggested for your reading in that list, and uh, I've made it really easy for you. It's a really easy click to buy. So just go to that part of the website. Nice now, book. I'm just disappointed I didn't have a, a more original answer. <laughs> That's okay. You know, you're just one of the team here at Cars. Yeah, so we love that. Very nice. Well, we're up to the checkered flag here, Mike, and this last question could be a bit of a doozy. Today, I'm going to buy you any cool collector car on the planet. doesn't matter what it is, but you have to keep it and you have to drive it. No garage queens here at Cars. Yeah, and you can't sell it to buy a bunch of other toys with, so... That little trick's off the table, but money's no object. I'm buying today. So what's it going to be and why? This is going to be a tough one. And if you're a car guy, people say, what's your favorite car? And you say, well, I'm going to give you an answer. And in an hour, I'm going to have a different answer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> because it always is changing. My gut reaction initially was just, I always wanted like kind of a Myers-Manx dune buggy. Oh. <laughs> to refer back to talking about my son and the car that got away, we've been looking at Mark II Toyota Supras. This is the first kind of edgy 
Toyota, uh, the Super Super that came out, uh, inline six-cylinder engine. I taught them how to drive a manual transmission, and a lot of them became total rust buckets, so it's tough to find one. So I, I know it's kind of a crazy answer, but but yeah, we're, we're kind of going through a super phase right now. And again, yeah, the way you, you asked the, the question was, it's not a, it's not a, an investment. It's not this. It's just what do you that's, – so that's, that's kind of the old car uh, hankering that I've got going on right now. Well, that car, let's see, those cars came out in 78, I think, and they were produced until about 2001 or two, something like that, if my memory serves me yeah, right. It's the, I guess they, they call it the second generation. The first one was the Celica Supra. It was kind of rounded, and it, was, it didn't look much different than the current Celica. But then in, I think it's in 1983, the first edgy Supra design came out, and that's the one I saw in college and I've loved ever since. Well, of course, front engine rear wheel drive, which made them pretty cool. Two plus two type fastback car. So uh, you're a unique guy, Mike. You're the first one to answer that question that way. And I liked the reasoning. And that's why I take the money part out. Because, well, so many yeah, because people, I mean, anyone, anybody can say, you know, Ferrari, I, I want a I want a Lamborghini, I want a 911 or something like that. And I've, I've been fortunate to, to drive a, a few, not real not really intense exotics, but a few of those. And I mean, the current Corvette, you really, technically you can't beat it. It's so good, but that's not what's pulling at my heart right now. Cause I do want to have this father son project with my son. The supers right now are kind of what we're leaning toward, but we haven't, uh, haven't pulled the trigger yet. Well, there you go. Well, I'll be happy to find you one and deliver it to your garage. That sounds like, <laughs> I'll try to make sure it doesn't have any rust. That'll be a challenge, but you know, there's probably some sitting out there that have been tucked away. That have been well-loved and well-cared for. We'll start in the, uh, the Southern California region. We'll find something down there for you. The idea was to drive it back to Connecticut. Of course. Yeah, that's all part of the deal. My son and I drove a Beck Spider that I bought from John Wilhoyt, a restorer who's been on the show in Long Beach. Spent five days driving that car up the California coast with my son when he was eight years old. And to this day, we still talk about it. And to this day, to this day, he's never forgiven me for selling that car. <laughs> so, uh, Have you answered some of the questions that you've been asking other people? Well, here's the deal. If you go back and listen to my 300th show, my son, Blake, interviewed me. So you can go back and listen to that show. And if you listen to my uh, 1000th show, Tommy Kendall came back after being my 500th guest and he interviewed me and I answered all these questions. So if you want to hear how I would answer the questions, you can go listen to those two shows. And uh, my answers maybe change a little bit between show 300 and show 1000 because maybe I've matured a little bit. I'd like to think <laughs> I have, but uh, you never know. I'm a pretty consistent guy. Well, very cool. Well, Mike, you've taken us on a great ride today. I really enjoyed your stories. I want to thank you for sharing your automotive journey with the Cars yeah audience. Would you offer us one little parting piece of wisdom or guidance before you and your son drive off into the sunset in that Mark II Toyota Supra? If you can dream it, you can be it. And don't quit. Don't give up. You get roadblocks. You get setbacks. You start having doubts. If you believe in a career path, a journey in your life, just keep at it. Very well said. And what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you and Consumer Reports? Uh, you can go to consumerreports.org. That's where we're publishing a lot of our, our, our latest and greatest information. I'm typically one of the uh, cast members on the Talking Cars podcast. Uh, that's on YouTube and, and can be downloaded from everywhere. I'm on Facebook, and I'm just having a great old time here in Connecticut. Absolutely. Well, listeners, again, you can find links to everything Mike has shared with us today on his Cars Yeah show notes page. Just go to carsyeah.com, click on Mike Quincy. And that page will pop right up. And, of course, we've all grown up and known about Consumer Reports, but 
They're evolving, changing all the time. There's so many cool things you can access there. It's not just the magazine that it used to be. It's so much more. So check it out. Mike, thanks for being so generous today with your time and expertise and for sharing your experiences with me and the Cars Yeah audience. Until you and I talk again, I'll see you down the road. Thanks so much for having me on. This has been fun. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people, but what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. Member, Finra Sipic. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah! Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up! a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!